Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Hey, Rob, how are you doing today? Hey, John, doing pretty well. How are you? Good. Hey, thanks for taking some time to talk to me today. I know we first uh, broached this uh, possibility of doing this back in in May at the West Coast uh, AML Forum. So I'm glad we were able to finally get a, a time and a schedule. So um, as I told you then, as, and we've talked about offline, one of the things that continues to interest me and I think interests our, our community, our broad-based AML community, is uh, career paths and how people make decisions regarding this world that you and I both either we've fallen into, which I did many, many, many years ago, or something that we deliberately wanted to be part of, and how that happens, especially now, because we have all these different options. And so the specific option, obviously, that we're going to chat about today is the cryptocurrency world. But first of all, you work for CypherTrace, which is a MasterCard company. And I'm uh, very interested in sort of your your mission, if you will. I know that you obviously, as MasterCard does, it, it works closely with traditional financial institutions and some fintechs, but uh, part of the mission and part of your role is to advise your clients about some of the challenges in the cryptocurrency space, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely, John. So it's, it's interesting, right? MasterCard, um, you, you alluded to kind of what they do and, and, and what they've done for a really long time. And uh, CypherTrace. So CypherTrace, right, works with um, law enforcement, government agencies, um, traditional financial institutions, uh, crypto entities, um, et cetera, right? So work, work with a number and, and as a blockchain analytics firm, right, it provides tools to um, allow those different players to um, root out the uh, illicit activity and, and do their different functions. So where that all comes together, and, and overall, uh, MasterCard and CypherTrace share that same, same vision of um, making the whole crypto ecosystem, digital asset ecosystem, just safer in general, right? Making it safer to operate in, um, reducing uh, the volume of illicit activity, reducing cybersecurity risk, reducing money laundering, terrorist financing risk, reducing fraud, things of that nature. So, um, yeah, it really kind of, you know, both firms come together on that. You know, um, obviously a very recent phenomenon. I know Bitcoin's been around for maybe a decade and a half, something like that. But I know that uh, for most of us, uh, and you could tell by the conferences we, we all attend, right, that now there's obviously a separate conferences on virtual assets or digital assets. And obviously the money laundering prevention conferences have sessions on this. But you started your career in with traditional banks and then you moved to the Federal Reserve in Kansas City. Uh, while you were in those roles, I know you had some AML responsibilities. What drew you to uh, digital assets? Was it something you raised your hand and said, I'd like to help here? Was it like some of us, you sort of got, I don't say pushed into it, but hey, we need somebody to do this. Rob, would you do it? How did you get, your, how did you get involved into that? Because it takes a lot of education and understanding you know, even if you're a tech whiz, would I would imagine there's a learning curve. Yeah, no, definitely. I would say 
I, I kind of fell into it much like I did into AML in general. So uh, when I first started working for uh, a bank in the accounting function, I, I fell into AML uh, because of an enforcement action that the bank was going through, right? And I just happened to sit 15 feet away uh, from the, the BSA AML group that needed more bodies. And uh, so I kind of fell into it that way and, and learned and, and grew through that experience uh, and, and navigated my way through the Kansas City Fed back to another bank, and then back uh, to the San Francisco Fed. Uh, and that's where um, my path crossed um, with, with this digital asset topic and um, in, uh, with some firms in Northern California and Southern California, uh, and, and really just kind of um, uh, being maybe somebody who raised their hand or um, you know, kind of a combination of, of being volunteered uh, as well, um, you know, had to uh, very quickly get up to speed to how things worked. Um, really at that time, it was very much so uh, from a BSA AML sanctions perspective, but that right. that changed over time and, and became more broad um, to, to think about things like safety and soundness and consumer protection and um, cyber considerations and things like that. What, what was the biggest challenge up front? Not necessarily for you, but in general. So one of the things, and I've talked to some other folks in the crypto space for these podcasts, and, um, you know, typically, not in every case, typically these companies will hire traditional compliance people um, once they recognize, hopefully right away, that they need assistance uh, in that space. Um, some willingly, some not so much. What was your first inkling about the, the mindset of, people in the crypto space. So, you know, if you're coming from the Federal Reserve, obviously you have that big banner behind you, federal regulator, policy place, all that sort of stuff. Um, is it, yes, we want to work together with, uh, with the regulators to make sure things go okay? Or is it, you know, uh, lack of a better term, a thumbing their nose, hey, we don't need the same regulations. We're not banks, that sort of thing. So, I assume it's a mix of things, but what was your experience dealing with people that were specifically in either crypto companies or advising crypto companies? Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's definitely a mix um, on, uh, on that. Um, there's a lot of large uh, crypto firms that are very vocal about uh, the need for sound regulation and, and have gone as far to, um, you know, try to, um, to build their, uh, internal controls to, to kind of fit what they think might make, uh, make sense from that regard. And, and a lot of those folks come from uh, traditional financial institution backgrounds, uh, government agency and intelligence agency backgrounds, law enforcement. So, um, you know, you, you have enough of those uh, thought processes and individuals at a lot of the, uh, the major crypto firms. So that I think that thought process gets, um, gets brought up. Uh, and, and, um, is certainly part of the conversation, but, um, most of my interaction in initially was with, uh, the financial institution that was mm -hmm. providing services for the crypto world. So as I started to get more directly, um, involved in conversations with the crypto entities, uh, or digital asset entities, and especially now, right. Going to a conference, uh, like a West coast AML, where you have, uh, that as a topic mixed with other topics and, um, then the next week going to strictly a crypto conference, 
um, you know, where there's no bank folks, there's no regulatory folks. Um, it, it is a very different dynamic. One is, uh, you know, I'd say one camp has kind of the view of both worlds. And then one camp is just so focused on um, technological development and enhancement and, um, you know, maybe just uh, is hoping to continue to operate a little bit more um, without some clear regulations so they can push those boundaries of innovation. Yeah, I, 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 that would make sense. You know, that some say we want to compete with you guys, meaning the financial sector and others like, no, we think we, we're better off collaborating or cooperating. That 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 would make uh, a ton of sense that there would be that separate mindsets, like you know, uh, lack of a better term. I think that makes sense. Um, MasterCard has a long history, and you met, you alluded to this at the front end, of working uh, closely with law enforcement on a whole host of issues. And you referenced the same with Cypher Trace. Uh, from, from a high level, how, uh, how does that manifest itself? Obviously, if it's cybersecurity, I'm sure it's, you know, exchanging information on typologies, red flags, that kind of thing. But um, is there an, is it ongoing relationships like a lot of your traditional financial institutions have had? Do you have, now you come from the Federal Reserve, do you have folks that have come to your company from law enforcement? Because that obviously is what a lot of financial institutions do. Again, high level, not, not trying to look for anything proprietary, yeah. but high level, how do they work together? Yeah, yeah, you bet. So, um, uh, so our Cypertrace group, um, I would say, um, and, and this is probably true for all blockchain analytics firms, right? You've got a number of them out there, um, a, a lot hire former intelligence agencies, former law enforcement. Um, we, we, be, we tend to be a little bit heavier on um, kind of the government agency, um, military, and banking experience. So we, we kind of gravitate towards uh, those types of folks on our team. Um, mix in some other with, with more crypto background, obviously. Um, but uh, that, that's kind of how we have a diverse set of knowledge and, and skills within our group, um, especially on the regulatory and investigative side of things, um, compliance function, if you will. But, uh, you know, how we kind of interact with law enforcement, I say that's one of the key differences I noticed in this role compared to my prior banking roles, right, where right. it was more, um, they'd reach out and get additional information if there's a subpoena request or SAR follow up or whatever it may be, fraud working groups, right? That, that was kind of its thing and, and continues to serve a great purpose. This is more law enforcement agencies, hey, we're going to use your tools uh, and, and kind of help identify the flow of funds and, um, because everything's pretty transparent, um, right? There's, there's some ways to, to disguise funds and hide funds, sources and uses, but um, everything's right there. Um, right. It's, it's kind of uh, a little bit of a different, um, sense compared to, to cash activity. Right. So, um, that, that's kind of the, the main difference, right. Is as I see the interactions with law enforcement, it's almost more like a kind of like a service provider in some ways where some agencies utilize our tools and utilize our investigative uh, expertise, right. To, to try to um, put the pieces together on their side so they can, um, go out and, and actually catch people that are doing things illegally. Right. So. Yeah. Um, so obviously the client base is both private and public sector. That, that makes a lot of sense. The, um, 
the issue of money laundering, specifically in the crypto space, uh, you know, one of the things that we hear law enforcement talk about is uh, sometimes the concern about anonymity or close to anonymity. G give us a couple of examples, if you can, about uh, how, how uh, in crypto, how money can be laundered, how, how value can be laundered and, um, you know, sort of, uh, again, high level examples that uh, you guys have seen in your work, either with the government or with your financial institution clients or partners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I would say nothing is absolute, but there's, right, there's sure. certainly, you know, some techniques um, that exist in that space to try to disguise that um, uh, the, the trail of funds, right, the source and use of funds. So um, you have things in the, the uh, crypto space where, uh, or digital asset space, uh, depending on if you're talking about coins or tokens, but um, you have things like um, uh, peel chain activity. So um, I almost look at it as like an inverted funnel account activity where, okay. um, you know, you're kind of slowly peeling off. Um, maybe you had 10 Bitcoin and you're slowly peeling it off and doing thousands of transactions uh, to, to try to recirculate the money and move it through, um, you know, other, other wallets and other destinations. And then uh, ultimately then, you know, looking to, to do that traditional funnel approach to bring it back to one place or, or one entity. Um, so you have a lot of that stuff going on, right? Uh, peel chain is a term. And uh, I think funnel account uh, or funnel activity still very much applies. Um, so you've got those. And then you've got, um, you know, mixers and tumblers. A lot of people uh, talk about those where, um, you know, if I, if I want to um, kind of wash uh, the source of the fund and, and say, hey, I've got a Bitcoin and I want to send it through this mixing um, service. They, they say, okay, we'll take, you know, a 5% a fee and we will kind of disguise the origin of the funds and get it back to you in a new, uh, in a new address, new, you know, new setup uh, that nobody knows is, is um, uh, attributed to you, uh, most likely an unhosted wallet or uh, private wallet, right? Um, and here you go. Now it's clean. You're ready to go. You've got your privacy, um, and that's the service they offer. So that uh, utilizing those services, um, there are ways to to get around that, but um, that that's another method of kind of uh, right laundering funds and disguising um, disguising the ownership of funds uh, to to get to get around um, the analytic capabilities of some of the firms. Um, that that's kind of three. Sure. Um, there's a number of other things and they're what I, what I have learned is they're not too dissimilar from really all the traditional red flags that we're, we're so used to like using mules and, um, structuring activities and finding institutions or entities with weak KYC and weak AML controls, right. And trying to, to utilize them to turn your crypto into actual cash. Is it, um, is it fair to say that, you know, we always talk in, in financial crime prevention that the criminals are always a couple of steps ahead of the rest of us, uh, which is an old saw. Like, you know, you go to the banks because that's where the money is sort of <laughs> sort of phrasing. Uh, is, is that the case here? Because, you know, this is, a, I think, a complicated area. And my educated guess would be that, you know, some criminals are not that intelligent, you know, especially ones doing money mules or, 
Nigerian scams or what have you. But are you finding that they are pretty adept at using crypto or do you guys feel that you're staying sort of on on par with them? You know, and obviously there's no metrics here, but just in general, what's your sense of that? Because that that's interesting to me, because I would imagine it's got to be as difficult to understand as it is for the, the lay person. But but what's it like in the real world? Yeah. Yeah. So this is something that I would say I continue to learn um, every, I'd say every day, but it's, it's really every hour here. And, and um, I was just on a, a call here this morning with one of our investigators and um, you know, she was talking about this in a, in a training event and uh-huh. just kind of said like, Hey, uh, ultimately there's going to be a pocket of individuals that no matter how sophisticated they are technologically, they still might do something stupid. Um, so when we go back to that mixer piece we were talking about before, right, they clean their Bitcoin, um, but they may have done something dumb along the way that, you know, basically, um, shows their trail. Um, so, uh, it's very much, so there's people behind the activity. Um, there's always going to be a portion of them that, um, you know, continue to kind of do that dumb stuff that make it easier to, to trip them up. But then there's a lot of sophisticated uh, operations as well um, that that are very much so out there. Um, I know you mentioned kind of the metric piece. I wouldn't I wouldn't say this is exactly the direction uh-huh. you're going, but when I think about everything that I was taught in traditional finance about just global uh, money laundering uh, as a percentage of kind of the global GDP, right? You, I I just recall percentages of anywhere between two and five percent over the years. And um, crypto, uh, at least the identified total volume is under 1%. Um, it's very possible that it's higher than that, right? And it could be closer to that too or, or so. But uh, generally speaking, um, it, it's easier to actually identify it, right? You, you don't have that huge range necessarily that you do um, with things that are not traceable. So um, that, that is one thing that I learned almost immediately coming into this world is, Hey, as a total percentage, maybe the illicit activity is um, maybe not as vast as people just automatically think. You you know, um, this, uh, this is not an economic conversation, obviously, but as we talked offline with what's going on in the market and I've read various numbers, but I think they, the agreed numbers, at least $2 trillion in wealth have evaporated in the crypto space. And so there's articles about sort of the end of cryptocurrency. Others have speculated that it's a, it's, it's a scam to begin with, what have you. I know we're neither of us, you're closer to being an expert than I am. We're, we're not experts in this space. But what's your take about the community, not the community, the market in general, I don't mean the the stock market, but the crypto market based on who, who you talk to, who you interact with, uh, just the fact that they've lost so much value. Is this something that, um, for your perspective, it doesn't matter. we got to still stay focused on the challenges and the potential illegal use of crypto for our clients. But you must have some thoughts in general on what, where you see this a year or two down the line. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and the interesting thing from our perspective, blockchain analytics, and then um, transactional activity, thinking about MasterCard, right, is um, what you're talking about, right, is the evaporation of market cap. Right. Um, so $3 trillion to $1 trillion roughly. And, um, you know, I think it was the first half of 2021, the World Bank said 
I don't know, 16 trillion in transactions um, for crypto. And um, one of our researchers just did something here in the month of May, and it was like 2.2, I want to say, roughly, for just the month of May. Um, so, you know, just trying to think about uh, that and, and the transactional activity is not necessarily slowing down. It, it might be growing in some respects, but um, it, it just leads me to think that maybe this is just something that would weed out some of the weaker players. Um, right, right. I mean, there's tokens and coins. There's tens of thousands of these things out there. There can't be tens of thousands of economic uses for, uh, for those types of things. But I think the underlying technology um, is really interesting and it, it, it could have a, a more viable longer term use. But, um, you know, I think it's just going to flush out some of the weaker players here. And, and that's what I hear a lot of people talking about at both traditional conferences and, and crypto conferences, people that are really, you know, more economically savvy than I am. So, it, you know, go, going back to um, your old agency, uh, what's your view on how the Fed and Treasury and others, you know, they made a lot of public statements, not just recently in the past, I don't know, five, six months, maybe longer, uh, about crypto. And, and obviously the Biden administration has created some task forces and all of that. Um, where do you see all that going? Do you see that going toward additional regulation? Um, you know, uh, you know, additional, you know, fo- you know, focus on on the challenges. I mean, obviously, we- we've seen legislation introduced um, in the AML space. We've mm-hmm. also seen stuff separate and apart from that. So, just looking back at, like I said, at your old agency and the policy debate. Where do you see that headed in the next couple of years? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think back to probably November of 21, right? The executive order um, gets, I think, a lot of attention, and rightfully so, here in March. But back in November, um, I was looking at the federal banking agencies and seeing, right, you've got the president's working group on stable coins. You've got comments from the OCC. You've got comments from the... Um, the Fed agencies on a crypto policy sprint, um, a lot of research. And, and um, I, I think there's this heavy, heavy focus right now um, from, from all the agencies to um, take a deep dive into, um, into the policy, into the regulation. My sense is uh, it's almost like, hey, what traditional stuff still applies, traditional risk management considerations, what, what maybe matches one for one and then um, maybe what, what doesn't match, what's new, kind of doing a delta. Um, that's my thought. I'm not sharing anything that's you know right. conf- confidential or anything. That's just kind of my, my best guess. But uh, um, the executive order was helpful. I think it just put everybody um, – it, it was almost like a project planning document in a way, right? It right. basically said, you do this, you do this, you get with this agency, and, and here's your time frame to complete these steps. Um, so I think when we get to the end of that, which is probably, I think the longest time frame would put us into October or November, um, something like that. So I think as we get to that point, um, it, it's going to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more clear of who fits where, um, once you can get kind of the SEC and the CFTC to, to get right. along a little bit, um, but for the most part, I feel like the federal banking agencies got into lockstep back in November and have continued to do so since then. Uh, 
Rob, I'd like to uh, get you out of here on, on this, go back to your career pathing. Um, you said, and it's sort of a common, common example, you said uh, with an accounting background, you uh, ended up in BSA uh, and then went to the Fed and you've been different places. And obviously now you're learning about crypto. Uh, what kept you engaged in AML? For people that are listening and you know they've seen somebody like yourself that's gone from private sector public back and back and forth a little bit but obviously staying within the same theme of you know AML financial crime prevention sanctions you know the space that we're all in what kept you staying there what what do you find uh comfort's the wrong word but what do you find the most intriguing interesting challenging about our community that keeps you involved in this yeah. Yeah. I think, um, since day one, I, I found out very quickly that, um, it's almost like a principle based approach, right? You, you, you have some of your black and white legal stuff, but for the most part, there's a lot of opportunity to, um, apply problem solving, critical thinking, uh, things are constantly changing, right? You alluded to it, right? The criminals are, are constantly trying to get two steps ahead. Um, so for me, AML gives you a full view into um, a lot of organizations. You get to see a lot of what's going on. You, you see a lot of inner workings of transactions and clients and um, how it all fits together. And, and uh, I don't know. I just I found it fascinating um, to, to see that and then be a part of, um, you know, helping law enforcement is, is, a, big, uh, is a big thing um, for me, ultimately knowing that a lot of the work in the AML space goes to serve that function. Um, you know, the, I would say those, those two things, the, the critical thinking aspect and, uh, being able to serve kind of that law enforcement centric piece, um, those of what, uh, really kept me, uh, in, in, in that space. That's great. Uh, Rob Triano, director of crypto risk for Cypher Trace, which is a MasterCard company. Want to, uh, sincerely thank you for taking some time today and sharing your insight. Thanks so much. Stay safe and we'll talk soon. Thanks, John, for having me. Really appreciate it. Take care. All right, you too. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.